There is an old lawyerly adage going back to at least 1911 that advises you on how to argue a case. If the law is on your side, you pound the law. If the facts are on your side, you pound the facts. And if neither the law nor the facts are on your side, you pound the table. Today, in this passage, Peter is going to bring out the history of Jesus Christ and he's going to pound the facts. He is going to pound the law and he's going to pound the table. So we're going to get all three. And at the end, there's going to be such a great consternation among his audience that pandemonium arises. But we'll see that later on and not in today's message. Have you ever completely missed an event? Maybe even a, a history-changing event. You just, you were there, but you didn't know what's going on. On September 11th, 2001, I completely missed the attack on the World Trade Center. I knew nothing about it. Uh, about four months earlier, I had left as a teaching elder from another church, and in the morning I got this strange phone call from a former member of the church. And she said, Mike, do you think Ted will be, be safe working on, uh, on the airplane lines in Texas? And I thought it a strange question, but you'd have to know the people. And I said, well, I don't know why not. He's in Texas. Texas is a pretty safe state. And she said, oh, thank you. And that was the end of the conversation. So I still don't know anything. And one can argue I still don't know anything. Well, we walked in to my parents' house just after the second uh, World Trade Center building fell. I had known nothing about it. And all of a sudden, here it is on the TV. And, and 20 years later, it's changed a lot of lives. I, Niels told me just a year or two ago, he said, you know what I decided to go into the air, be an Air Force officer? And I said, when? And he said, September 11th, 2001. I said, you were seven. He said, yes. And at that point, I decided I was going to do my best to eradicate terrorism from the face of the earth. And that's what he's doing today. Well, this is how Peter's audience felt at the end of Peter's sermon. The Jewish nation had been waiting for the Messiah for 4,000 years. 4,000 years. They studied the scripture. They read the prophecies. They waited patiently for 4,000 years trying to identify the day and season of the Messiah's appearing. And Peter, in one short sermon, proves to them by fact, by their own knowledge, and by scriptures, that not only did Christ come, but he walked among them. Some of these very people that he's talking to right now, walked, uh, Jesus walked among, and then they took him and they crucified him. And they never knew who he was. The Jews gathered in the temple courtyard that day were bewildered, flabbergasted, and horrified, one person wrote in a commentary. How could they not know who Jesus was? How could they not recognize 
the Messiah. And you know that this is a question I have been been asking uh, in uh, in reference to, uh, to uh, Isaiah 50, uh, 53rd chapter of Isaiah. How can you read that and not know what's going on? And I have the answer for you today, but not until the end. I have pointed out earlier that there were six million Jews in the Roman Empire, and by the year 300 AD, there's only 300,000 left. Only 5% of the Jews remained. And I postulated that they all became Christians. Well, on more research today, in Israel at this time, there were four major Jewish sects. There were the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees, there were the Essenes, and there were the Zealots. And all of them put together are about 5% of the Jewish population. Those sects within Judaism were 5%. Now, just as it seems today that our ruling class seems uh, determined to replace everyday American citizens with a more compliant population, so too did the Jewish ruling class end up ruling only themselves, the elite. Of the four special sects in Israel at the time of Jesus, we pay the most attention to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We know the Pharisees the best. Pharisee probably means separatist, which should be a warning to us since we come from separatist thinking ourselves. But Pharisee means separatist in Hebrew. Pharisees were very legalistic. Robert uh, Gundy states that some Pharisee rabbis forbade spitting on the ground on the Sabbath. Why do you think that was? Because it was unhealthy? Because it was a dirty habit? No, because you might stir up the dust, and that would could constitute plowing the ground. Okay? This is... This is the level of, uh, of strictness that they were applying their, to their religion. The Pharisees built up a body of traditional in, interpretation and application of the law that became more important than the law itself. Uh, even Jesus knew this and called them out on it. He, called, he said, you hypocrites. He said, you I've gone over it before, but you make people twice uh, the children of hell that you are from your actions. Now, Josephus estimated that there were, at the time of, just after Jesus, because Josephus was slightly later, that at the time of Jesus there were about 6,000 Pharisee men in the nation. So just 6,000 are handling this. Now, the Sadducees were the Jewish aristocracy. Uh, they were the wealthy of the Jewish society. Uh, they were... Uh, Karl Blomberg says that they uh, denied immortality. They didn't, we know that they did, denied their uh, resurrection because that's why they were sad, you see, the old children. Um, they did not believe in angels and demons and had a low view of God's sovereignty. Uh, they were basically confined to the um, 
to just a few wealthy families, priestly families. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Um, the Sadducees became rich off temple work and assimilated into the Greco-Roman culture and therefore they supported the Roman occupation because this is what was supplying their wealth. Now the Essenes are interesting. I'm not going to go into deeply why, why they're interesting, but some people had suggested that Jesus was an Essene, but there were too many differences between them and, and he wasn't. But they were also highly legalistic they found the people who ran the temple, the Sadducees, highly corrupt. Gusto Gonzalez says that the Essenes tried to obey the law by withdrawing from society and had an intense expectation that the end was very near. Essenes totaled perhaps 4,000 men in the society. And then there were the Zealots. And the Zealots were the terrorists of Israel. They continually fought the Roman occupation. They would assassinate Jews who cooperated with the Romans. Josephus blamed the the political upheaval that culminated in the destruction of the temple in AD 66 on the zealots and the Roman desire for peace in uh, in their empire. Now, like I said, they made up about 5% of the population. The other 95% of the population were ordinary Jews. Uh, They were farmers. They were fishermen. They were merchants. They were craftsmen. They made their sacrifices in Jerusalem when they were supposed to, kept to the Torah, but paid no attention to the extra laws and traditions that had added on to the responsibility of the Jews. The people of Galilee exemplified this this attitude. A big reason that uh, the Judeans made fun of Galileans was that the people of Galilee did not care for the fine points of Jewish religious observance and law. They didn't care for the study of the law. They didn't care for the study of the religion. But the main reason that more people didn't know that they were killing Jesus. Well, they knew they were killing Jesus. They didn't know that they were killing the Messiah was that Jesus was largely unknown in Israel and utterly unknown in the rest of the Roman Empire. They simply did not know who he was. Remember that the Romans considered Israel a backwater in their empire. Jesus' ministry was largely confined to his home of Galilee. Though thousands and even 10,000 we have in, would come in here and speak, and he, he fed the 10,000 and the 5,000. That's just a drop in the bucket of the population of Israel. Now, one can assume that of the 120 believers gathered in the upper room at Pentecost, most were Galileans. There weren't many of the ruling class following Jesus, but we know that there were some. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea asked for Jesus' body for burial and put him in a new cut tomb. Jairus 
who came to Jesus to heal his daughter, was a ruler of the synagogue. So we know that some were following him. In fact, uh, John 12:42 points out that, quote, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, we know that believers and Jews continued worshiping in the temple and in the synagogues. Paul would make a point of going into synagogues and arguing, teaching about Jesus, arguing about the law. And the worship of Christians in the uh, temple and the synagogues lasted until a little after the destruction of Jerusalem, not much longer. When the Romans... Roman armies arrived to besiege Jerusalem. The early Christians took Jesus' words in Luke 21 to heart. It says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and this is Jesus speaking, and I suggest that when Jesus speaks, it's going to come about. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and you know that its desolation has come near, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And last week, you know, I was pointing out that with Hezekiah, when when Isaiah came to him and said, put your house in order because you're not going to live very long, Hezekiah should pay attention, and he did. And when Jesus says, when you see the army surrounding, flee to the hills, it's a good idea to do that. And the Christians did. And miraculously walked out through a split in the Roman lines. And I'd say, we don't know why the split in the Roman lines was there, but actually we do. Because Jesus said, get out and go through the Roman lines. So it's a miraculous, unexplained, in Scripture, event. When the destruction of Jerusalem was over, the Sadducees and the Sellers were completely destroyed. There were no more. They did not exist after AD 66. And the Essenes disappeared from the scene. We don't know what happened to the Essenes. There were two Christian, there were two Jewish sects left. The uh, Pharisees and what were called the Nazarenes, which were Jewish Christians. The final break between Jews and Christians in, in Israel came around year 105. It was between 95 AD and 115. Gamaliel II, and Gamaliel was a, the original Gamaliel was, is still revered as one of the greatest rabbis ever in Jerusalem, but Gamaliel II commissioned a benediction to be composed to be used in Jewish synagogues. In part it read, now remember we have Christians, Jewish Christians 
in these synagogues and the benediction at the end to be read in every service went, may the apostates have no hope and may the Nazarenes and the Minim, which were Jewish Christians, disappear in a moment. May they be erased from the book of life and not be inscribed with the righteous. Now that was... I haven't read any benedictions quite like that at the end of our services. I tried to do you know, a real nice, uplifting one. But that was a benediction that was being said at the end of every service in the synagogue. And I guess the Christians decided that they weren't welcome anymore. Uh, oddly enough, um, in the rest of the Roman Empire, it went on, and perhaps it was not used in the rest of the Roman Empire, because... Uh, Christians were basically worshipped alongside Jews until the year 300 in a lot of the rest of the Roman Empire. With that as an introduction, let's get back to Acts 20, uh, 2, 22 through 24, and I'll read the whole thing. And this is Peter. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus is a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So with that salutation, men of Israel hear these words. Peter starts in, and then he gets immediately to the point. Jesus of Nazareth. There is no Christianity without Christ, without Jesus. Jesus is preeminent in this oration because he's the only point of it. Anyway, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. And note that Peter doesn't list what they are. And you might wonder, why doesn't Peter say, oh, well, you know, folks, he, he walked on water. He fed 5,000 people with no food, basically. He healed the sick. He made the lame walk. He restored the sight of a man blind from birth, which is impossible. He even raised the dead. Why doesn't Peter say these things? It's because he didn't have to say them. People had been flocking to Jesus because they knew he was a miracle worker. They were coming just to see his miracles. I've, I've read this before, but uh, in uh, John 11, John 11, 35-37 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So they're coming for the Passover, just like we're talking here at Pentecost. The people are coming for the feast, and they've come up for the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Because they knew what, what was being plotted. It says, now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So this is common knowledge for the people coming 
to Jerusalem for the Passover. Moving on to John 12, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him dinner, uh, a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those uh, reclining with him at the table. So Jesus does, and we know that Jesus is coming to the Passover because we know the story. But Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. So the people who were already in Jerusalem, when they heard Jesus was in Bethany, left and walked the less than two miles to Bethany to find Jesus. But it says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The crowds came not just to see Jesus, the miracle worker, they were coming to see Lazarus, the miracle. Peter did not have to list what Jesus had done, because everybody knew what Jesus had done. He had done mighty works. And continuing in verse 22, it says, in Acts, verse 22, that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. God had put his stamp of approval on Jesus' ministry and people knew that he had that these were being done through Jesus. Sometimes the Pharisees were trying to say that it was done through the devil and Jesus would have no part of it and say, you know, a house divided against itself will not stand. They knew that these were attested God's attestation of Jesus' ministry. Verse 23a says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. John MacArthur points out that there are three important words in this passage. Delivered up is the Greek word ekdotos, used only here in the New Testament. It describes those who are surrendered to their enemies or betrayed. So the first is he was delivered up or betrayed. The second is definite plan. It's also translated predetermined. It's from the Greek word, word horizon, where we get the English word horizon. Horizon means to march out with a boundary. If you think about, we say look out on the horizon. Well, that's the boundary of the sea as far or the land. It depends on where you're looking. I usually see the horizon on the sea. But, uh, and then foreknowledge is from prognosis, which is where we get our word. Never mind. I don't have to tell you what, what word we get from prognosis. And means more than um, knowing beforehand, but foreordained. So Jesus was betrayed to his enemies by a plan marked out and foreordained by God. Continuing on in uh, verse 23. And I'll, I'll go back just a little bit so that the sentence makes sense. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And 
most commentaries will tell you that those lawless men were the Romans because they were not under Jewish law and the Jews considered them not to be or considered them to be lawless. But I don't think this is entirely what Peter is getting at here. The, the Romans may not have been under God's law, but they had a highly developed system of justice. You may wonder then how they could execute a man who even the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, declared to be innocent. What, what kind of justice is this? Well, it depends on what you think justice is supposed to accomplish. For the Romans, the individual meant nothing. For instance, in the Roman military, we talk about being decimated. Well, there's a real thing about being decimated. It's a form of discipline in the uh, Roman military. If there was a problem with a company of soldiers, decimation could be ordered. One-tenth of the soldiers would then be ordered out of the lines, and the others would have to beat them to death. That is decimation. Now, the soldiers selected for decimation might have been entirely innocent, and probably were. But that didn't matter. The point wasn't innocence or guilt. It was control over the whole unit. Jesus' execution by the Romans also wasn't a question of innocence. They already knew he was innocent. But for the Romans, it was doing what was best for the Roman society. And what was best for the Roman society in place in Israel was to placate the Jewish authorities and keep the peace. It was not the Romans, therefore, who were lawless, but rather those who were under Jewish law who acted contrary to it. At Aerial Ministries, Dr. Trachtenbaum, and I'm, I'm using names because I'm not changing as much from what I you know, got it. We all hear that the Jews broke the law by trying Jesus at night. Have you all heard that? No, they broke 22 laws. Okay? There are 22 instances of lawlessness in the in the arrest, trial, and execution of Jesus. You were not allowed to be arrested by authorities when it was effected by a bribe. Okay? Remember the bribe that was paid to uh, Judas? No criminal proceedings could be after sunset. When was Jesus tried before the Sanhedrin? It was dark. Judges and Sanhedrin members could not participate in an arrest. Who arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? There were to be no secret trials, only public ones. Well, that was a pretty secret trial. No trials were allowed before the morning sacrifice. Remember I was talking about just earlier, you know, uh, Peter defending them against charge of drunkenness because it was only the third hour? Well, you were not allowed to start a trial before the fourth hour at the time of sacrifices. Sanhedrin trials could only be held in the hall of judgment in the temple complex. 
Well, that's not where they were. They were in the house of the chief priest. The defense was to present the defense before the accusation was heard. All present at the trial may argue for acquittal, but all may not argue for conviction, which means you're supposed to hear two sides unless it is so obvious for acquittal you didn't have to have somebody argue the other side. Nope. There were to be two or three witnesses and their testimony had to agree in every detail and that's in Deuteronomy um, 19.15. The accused did not have to testify against himself. Remember, they... Uh, they questioned Jesus about his statements about who he was. The high priest was forbidden to rend his garments. That's in Leviticus. At this trial, I mean, that's what do we call it nowadays? That is, uh, well, it's injurious to the defense, but that's not the word we would use. But the rending of garments was not to be done. Charges could not originate with the judges. The charge of blasphemy could only be used if the name of God was pronounced. A person could not be condemned on the basis of his words alone. The verdict could only be given in the daytime, not at night. For capital punishment cases, the trial and guilty verdict had to be separated by at least 24 hours. Voting for the death penalty was to be done by individual votes from the youngest to the oldest, so the youngest wasn't swayed by the oldest. The sentence could only be pronounced three days after the verdict. A unanimous decision was needed for a guilty verdict. Judges were to be humane and kind. The condemned were not to be beaten or scourged beforehand. No trials were allowed on the eve of the Sabbath or a feast day. So, who were the lawless men who executed Jesus? The Romans were no more than the instrument used. It was the high priest, the priestly class, and the Sanhedrin who were the lawless men. In arguments today against the death penalty, you'll often hear that if, if doing away with the death penalty saves just one innocent man, it's worth it. I mean, if you execute an innocent man and exculpatory evidence is later found, it makes no difference. Dead is dead. There is no reversal upon appeal. Unless you're God. In verse 24, Peter says that this Jesus that you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There has ever only been one truly innocent man. The rest of us throughout all of history, down to today, are under a sentence of death. That innocent man that abolishing the death penalty might save 
would yet be under the ultimate death penalty, the one instituted by God himself. There is only one escape from that death penalty, and that is believing in and calling on the name of the, of the one God raised up, loosing the pangs of death, Jesus Christ. You know, Isaiah 53 so accurately describes the affliction, torture, and, torture and death of Jesus that, like I say, I have asked several times in this series how the Jewish people could not see who this suffering servant was. Well, while studying for this, I came across an article from the seminary of Bob Jones University, and I'm going to read portions of it to you, just, just because. And I um, googled, what do Jews think about Isaiah 53? And, and so here's the title of this article is, How do Orthodox Jews read Isaiah 53? So we're, we're right in there. And this is written by Leighton Talbert, who is in the Old Testament theology department at the seminary of Bob Jones University. And he says, my good friend Craig Hartman, director of Shalom Ministries, and so of course I looked up Shalom Ministries, and it's a real and ongoing thing, describes, an, and it's outreach to Jews, Shalom Ministries, you know, we, we got that right, describes it in an approach he likes to use with Orthodox Jews. He starts with a question. He says, as an Orthodox Jew, you must study the Bible a lot. Can I ask your opinion on a Bible passage? He then begins to read to them from Isaiah 53. And when they try to look over the edge of the Bible to see what he's reading, he holds it up to show it's the New Testament and the Old Testament. That it's, and uh, so that you can see it's a Christian Bible. That satisfies their curiosity, so he continues reading. As he reads more and more of Isaiah 53, they invariably end up saying something like this. Oh, that's talking about your Jesus. Then he holds it out to them and shows them that it's Isaiah 53. He holds out in front so they can see exactly where he was reading. Reactions vary, but pleasant surprise is not one of them. Okay? The point. The picture of Christ on the cross in Isaiah 53 is immediately apparent even to an Orthodox Jew who simply hears it being read. So why don't they believe? There are lots of reasons, but the most theologically rooted explanation is offered by Paul when he writes that blindness in part has happened to, Jew to Israel, Romans 11.25, with the result that a veil lies over their heart when they read the Old Testament, 2 Corinthians 3.15. But in addition to that is this basically law of reality. You cannot see what you will not look at. And somebody mentioned this at Bible study, that they don't know it because they don't read it. Jewish synagogues follow a yearly reading schedule through much of the Old Testament. There are appointed readings for each Sabbath, as well as special readings on holy days. Every Sabbath includes a parsha, a reading from the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, which they read through entirely every year, followed by a reading from the prophets called the Haftarah. The same schedule is followed year after year. It has been for centuries and centuries. If you look up the yearly synagogue reading schedule on the internet, for example, here, and I did, you will discover that Isaiah 53 is never read. Ever. 
In fact, because the Isaiah 53 passage actually starts in Isaiah 52.14, they only read the Isaiah 52.13. And the Isaiah 53 passage goes to 54.12, and they don't take up their reading until 13. And I looked that up, and that is true. He says, we think of Isaiah 53 as a unit. Every year around September, one of the scheduled Sabbath readings is Isaiah 51, 12 through 52, 12. And he says, notice where this reading stops. What do you suppose the following Sabbath reading is? It's Isaiah 54. Uh, He says 1 through 10. So when I say that they don't read uh, on. But the interesting thing to say uh, to me is when they do read it, Jewish interpreters have historically uh, just ignored this passage, but when they don't, the standard Jewish interpretation for the last 1,000 years is the servant in this passage is the nation of Israel itself. Okay? It's not Jesus, it's the nation of Israel whose history of suffering has atoning value for the sins of all the other nations. And he gives an example for that that I did not look up. It's an interpretation that bristles with all sorts of problems, but that's for another time. It's enough for the present purpose to raise one simple question. If Isaiah 53 describes Israel's national suffering as God's servant on behalf of the whole world and promises a glorious future in which she will be exalted, and rewarded by God for all our offerings, would you expect a passage like that to be scrupulously avoided? Wouldn't you expect this of all passages to be cherished and included in the Jewish yearly reading of the Old Testament? Anyway, he concludes his article by saying, so it's only blindness in part, but that's not Paul's whole statement. Blindness in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Romans 11.23. That means the blindness is not only partial, it's also temporary, because then all Israel shall be saved. There's the explanation that I've been looking for. They scrupulously avoid Isaiah 53, because even an Orthodox Jew who's never read it knows who it's talking Let's close with prayer. Lord, we do know because we do read your entire Bible and we preach your entire Bible. We know who the suffering servant is. We know who was prophesied to come. We know because we read your entire word who that suffering servant was. It was your son and our God, Jesus Christ. I pray that the Jews will find that out and come back to you. We ask this in Jesus' name.